Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. My name is David, and as always, I've got my good buddy Ian Rice on hand to help me out with this week's episode. Ian, how are you? What's happening, my friend? Man, not much, not much. Uh, The weather is cool. There's good football on TV. My favorite time of the year, to be honest with you. It is a, a lovely season fall you know before we fall victim to some of those bitter colds you might not experience that quite as much down your way but it gets quite bitter up here in in the new york area do you have like a two or three window here where everything's just perfect and then it just goes south yeah pretty much yeah man what you been up to it's been a while i know not a whole lot uh yeah things have gone uh quiet since the end of the uh shaky moneymaker tour so there hasn't been a whole lot of uh news to report on but uh you know we keep doing our thing yeah there'll be some news at some other point if not we can just uh keep on going along without it. we don't need news do we we don't we uh you know we started this uh, whole thing with uh no news at the time and uh just as we were starting we got some news so <laughs> yeah i guess the next thing up would be the las vegas shows yeah and uh Hopefully we'll have some uh, correspondent or two uh, down that way. Yeah, and I guess after that we have the Brothers of a Feather show in Florida, and then I guess the European tour, if that's going to happen. Yeah, and uh, speaking of Brothers of a Feather, we are in the early planning stages of putting together an episode on that, so uh, we definitely might be looking for a guest. So if anybody wants to throw their hat in the ring, please do so. You can... Contact us on any of our social media platforms or send an email to stateofamorica at gmail.com. It'd be nice if we got one of the brothers of a feather. It would be. Well, you can wish in one hand and crap in the other and see which gets filled first. <laughs> um, yeah, so we got that coming up. We've got a tour wrap-up episode coming up where we're going to have some nice giveaways. And then... I know there, there are several of you that we've recorded Road Report episodes with that haven't aired. Ian, why don't you kind of explain what we're going to do with that? So with the remaining episodes we have, we're kind of going to do a two-part tour wrap-up. And the first part is going to be uh, kind of the best of the rest, so to speak. Uh, just use all those recordings in one episode. Uh, I apologize. Uh, we kind of recorded a bunch, and then the tour just kind of passed us by a little faster than... Uh, we thought it would. So uh, in order to still be able to use those recordings, we thought uh, that would be the most uh, efficient way to do it. Yeah. So if you recorded one with us, you're still going to be heard in one one way or the other. We just kind of we we kind of overdid ourselves with how many we did. Yeah, we overextended our reach a little bit. Yeah. But and anybody that was uh, you know tentatively lined up to do one that we never did record, we will definitely keep you in mind for uh, some kind of future guest appearance so uh we'll be we'll be in touch for sure and then we've got an episode we've already recorded where we had somebody come on that wasn't a fan of the black crows we let them listen to um some black crows music and them give us their opinion on that that one will be out sooner rather than later yeah and i had a really good time you had a really good time doing that episode and uh, i can't thank uh, mr steve wright enough for coming on and joining us with that and then we're going to have a Black Crows trivia episode, and we're going to have two heavyweights punching it out. Each of them does not know who the other one, who, who their opponent's going to be, and we're not going to let them know until we record. So, Oh, I didn't even know that we were doing it that way. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. So Ian and I are working on our questions uh, for that. And then what else? We that, that may round us out for the rest of the year with or come close to it. Yeah, we still have a few things that we've uh, recorded, and we're going to uh... – officially put them out you know uh those those road reports took over our uh our airwaves there for a bit um but well we're glad that everybody enjoyed them we appreciate the uh, support people showed us with those yeah i often thought like after the first one or two the downloads were going to really dip but they stayed pretty much even the whole time that's pretty impressive yeah yeah that that's why we kept doing them you know i thought the same thing as you did like after the 
you know, the first or, or first one or the first couple that, the, you know, things would uh, be on a decline, but they never did. They stayed pretty consistent. Hey, uh, I do want to ask everybody, we're trying to beef up our social media presence. We need more followers on Twitter, which is uh, at State of America, and uh, need more followers on Instagram, State of America on Instagram, and the State of America podcast on Facebook. That would be greatly appreciated, and it would really be greatly appreciated if you could go on Apple Podcast, leave us a five-star rating, and type up a review for us. We're at 183, I think, which is actually a lot. We'd love to try to get to 200 by the time we record another episode because I have been doing some playing around with their little algorithm thing, and I'm starting to see our podcast show up next to other podcasts. And so the more we can do that, the more we can show people, because we do get asked sometimes, how many? what are your numbers like, blah, 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 stuff like that. We can say, hey, our people, the, the people that listen to our podcast also listen to this podcast or that podcast, and it will really help us in the long run. And we may just randomly go through there and pick some of you that have written a review and send you a little something in the mail because Ian Claus has got a real big bag. Yeah, and we're coming into those uh, slower months when everybody's indoors more and everybody's schedule is slowed down. So uh, hopefully we'll get back to uh, some more of the giveaways. And also hopefully we'll get back to doing some more uh, Zoom hangs, some Facebook Live things, and really uh, be able to touch base with everybody a little bit more uh, regularly. Yeah, we had a um, a small Zoom hang the other night, and uh, we had a new person, Rob Ryan, popped on there with us for a little bit. It was nice uh, talking to him. We're going to start doing that more. We kind of have like a set group of 10 to 12 people that are that get on it, and usually it's on a, late on a Saturday night, and it's not necessarily about the Black Crows. Sometimes it's about the Black Crows. What I'm going to start doing is randomly reaching out to people or posting like a contest or something on Twitter and um, getting more people in that and get some new blood uh, because we, the people that we had on there, we've gotten to be really tight with them through the quarantine. Matter of fact, it was like every Saturday night, sometimes for like up to four hours. It's all of us on Zoom just having a good time. And it, if anything, it builds to your fr- your friendships. You get to add people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's definitely been a fun experience and something we'd like to uh, build on. And, uh, you know, quite some time back, we also did a, you know, a Facebook Live kind of thing. And that was fun. And, you know, hopefully we'll get back to something like that as well. And and uh, a whole other host of ideas we have uh, in the works. Yeah, we have a lot of stuff to give away. So we'll find a way to work all of that in here soon and uh, start getting that out to you. Other than that, uh, my interview this week is uh, Mark Dutton, also known as Muddy. Um, you may know him from Burning Tree. You may know him from the CRB. He's done some other things. I think he was even LA Guns for a little bit. And he is uh, doing some other ventures now. And so we're going to speak to him in just a second. Ian, you got anything else left to say? No, no. I was, I'm really excited about this uh, interview, to be honest with you. Uh, we had been trying to put this together for quite some time. And, and the stars uh, didn't quite align until until very recently. And I'm very happy to have uh, Mr. Dutton on. And uh, I think we had a lot of fun. Yeah. So here it is, everybody. Mark Muddy Dutton. everybody when we started this podcast a couple years ago we had a list of people that we wanted to have on here and we had this guy's name on from the beginning and it's taken us a while to sync up everybody's schedule but a number of you have been asking for him and we were finally able to deliver so uh, welcome to the state of america podcast mark dutton mark how are you i'm good thank you for having me well mark can we call you mark or should we call you muddy you you tell us (laughs) that's the big question isn't it yeah um I don't know. Ever since I got all grown up, I got people just slowly started calling me Mark. So it, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> okay. Whatever makes you comfy. So Mark, let's uh, let's start back at the uh, the beginning. Uh, you kind of came into the mainstream music scene with a little band called uh, Burning Tree with a fellow we all know, yeah. Mr. Mark Ford. How did that all come together for you? You know, I I grew up in uh, in Orange County, <clears throat> in Southern California. So we weren't, uh, you know, my the people I hung out with weren't uh, the cool kids. We weren't in LA County. We were just south of it. And um, I had I had a weird band. 
I was like an art guy. I was a punk rock art guy, you know, and I just, uh, we wanted to do weird stuff back then. And Fullerton actually was kind of a hub for some really cool bands, like punk rock, early punk rock bands, Adolescence and Social Distortion and Agent Orange and all that stuff, you know. But me and my friends kind of started more of a Lou Reed type of a glammy, weird uh, offshoot of that kind of thing. And um, just through playing gigs, I think I met Donnie first. And then we all started playing with each other. You know, it was a really great, it was a great scene back then. You know, people just did it for the art. Nobody was thinking about, well, I guess, you know, I mean, we were all thinking about fame, I suppose, on some level. But we were all just kind of doing it the way we wanted to do it. There was no board meeting about what kind of music you would write and play and, and, and what your band would like and all that kind of stuff. So we all just kind of started bumping into each other, you know, in our little ecosystem. And uh, Donnie and I um, really clicked because he was just one of the funniest motherfuckers I'd ever met. He's really, he was so crazy back then and just fun and introverted and extroverted at the same time. And obviously an incredible drummer. And we just started playing a different bands. And then Mark, we were all gigging together and we all used to hop up on stage together, you know, and just jam. And the three of us just kind of clicked, you know? And um, we started just playing a bunch of old 70s stuff. And, you know, one of us said, hey, I got a song. And, we, and it just kind of, it just kind of grew from there. Well, Mark, at that time, especially where you were living, um, you know, things were poison and warrant and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously Burning Tree was not that, but that was the flavor of the month at the time. Was there any pressure on you guys to try to go that route just for for financial purposes? You know, I, I'm sure there was, but the three of us were so just involved with our own little ego trip that we just didn't give a shit. You know, we would just play the kind of music we wanted to play. And to be honest, you know, I've met a lot of those guys since then, you know, all those from those hair bands. And um I think I can call some of them my friends, you know, maybe even good friends. But back then, to be totally honest, it was just silly to us. It was just nonsense. It was all theater. And we thought, you know, we are, you know, we're the real thing and uh you know we're going to play music uh from the heart and everybody's going to get it and it's going to be important and whatever right and you know we're never as important as we all think we are but i think we did some good you know just kind of by sticking to our own guns and um you know doing our own thing we used to play this this club called the coconut teaser and um it was incredible it was just a little it was a little shithole it was a restaurant with sawdust on the ground and uh there was a guy named len fagan who who ran the place he was kind of the head booker and this man changed my life and and mark's life and donnie's life he he was just our our staunch supporter and just would have us play the most important gigs and open up for you know we played with bonnie bramlett and uh just anybody cool that came through, you know, he'd put us on the gig and that's how we got noticed. And it was just the right time, the right place. You know, Mark was such a uh, stunning guitar player. Um, he was kind of that one note wonder guy, you know. I always, I always likened him to Neil Young. And I know that's kind of a weird reference, but Neil used to be able to just hit a note and dig in like, like he had an ax in his hand, you know. And, and he would just dig into that one note and it would just be the greatest solo you have ever heard. And Mark was able to do that kind of thing. And Tony did the crazy, you know, Mitch Mitchell thing. And, and uh, I don't know what I was doing, but it worked. And we just kind of, you know, we just kind of did our thing. I don't think we thought a lot of it. And I think a lot of the time we were just kind of drunk <laughs> and having fun, you know, doing what you think you're supposed to do at that age and just, just playing music from the heart. And, you know, looking back, I, I listen to some of our old stuff and some of it really sticks, you know, it was terrible, but you know, I don't know. It just, it didn't matter. It was real. And that's what, that's kind of what 
worries me about today. There's a lot of music out there that, um, I don't know. <laughs> it's just not, it's not, it doesn't have a human element in it anymore. It's like we're trying to, you know, once the drum machine came into play, it had its place and there was some great stuff that was done with that in, in the early days, but it kind of started this path towards perfection and you can't do that with art. Art is, is grossly imperfect and ugly and dark and, and angry, you know, and joyous at the same time. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't relate to a lot of the uh, modern music that's out there. It's funny you say that because when we had Mark Ford on here, we were talking with him. One of the great things about music is, especially when it's truly live, he may hold a note for a half a second longer than he normally would, or he gets a, you know, a little bit more feedback than he wanted. It's the live experience and the fact that it's not all the same. Like he told us, he said, I've never played the Sometimes Salvation solo the same way as I did on that recording. And he said, I will never be able to play it that way. And so I'm like you, I like real music. And if it's, you know, if it's live and you put your heart and soul into it, it's good. And you can pick up on that. And most everything today, at least in the pop realm and a lot, some in the rock realm, it's just, uh, it's just pre-programmed junk. It, it is. And, you know, carpenters, you know, in uh, ancient Japan used to, you know, when they were hired to make furniture, they would put a little dent in it or they would forget to, you know, they'd purposely leave off a little perfection on there because it was considered arrogant, you know, to do that. And it's a, I think that's kind of what art is. I mean, these, these machines are, are perfecting something that cannot be perfected and you lose something super important. Music is important. It doesn't matter what kind, it doesn't matter. I have my preferences, but real art and real music is extremely important. And if you start making it disposable, you lose a, a huge part of your humanity. And, and I mean, on a societal level, on a worldwide level, not just personally, you, you can't, you can't do that with, with the help of a machine. You know, I mean, I suppose you could say guitar is a machine on some level, right? Mm -hmm. But when you start, when the machine starts becoming your master, it's all over, you know, and that's, that's a shame. That's sad. That kind of grassroots warts and all mentality towards music seemed to be like the foundation that the Chris Robinson brotherhood was kind of built on. Is that kind of what attracted you to, to that band? Yeah. I mean, sure. <laughs> I got a call out of nowhere from, from Chris. We hadn't spoken in, in years. Like, you know, we spoke every one, every few years or ran into each other at a bar or whatever. And um, I hadn't heard from him in quite a long time. And I, I was doing my, my own trip. I, I just do a lot of producing and stuff, you know, when I'm in LA. And uh, he called me up <laughs> and he goes, Hey, buddy, it's Chris. And I, you know, I naturally said, Chris, who? He says, Chris Robinson. And I, and I thought somebody looked at me or something. And then I, I realized, you know, I kind of recognized his voice after, after he said that. Like, hey, man, what's going on? And he goes, Hey, man, I just, I wanted to call you because I, you know, I, it's really uncomfortable, but I, I was wondering if, if I could borrow $5,000. <laughs> and then the, there was a, there was a pause, right? For a couple of seconds. And I'm thinking, um, I guess. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm just fucking with you. I'm starting a new band. <laughs> and listen, I'm telling you something. I don't know if everybody knows this about Chris. He could be the, the, the funniest person I have ever met in my life. And I'm not kidding. I, I, that bus with all the stress, you know, that goes along with, you know, being on a bus for five or six years with the same people. I had to leave the bus sometimes because my stomach was cramping up because I was laughing so hard, <laughs> you know, and Chris just does that. He does that with music. You know, he did it. He did it. He was the first person up and person to band, you know, most of the time. And the guy, he lives and breathes music. You guys, I don't need to tell you guys in your crowd that, you know, Right. but it's true. I'm, I'm a first, I'm a firsthand witness, you know, 
he really did. He's a difficult man. He's a very difficult man, but all all great artists are. But I, I'll tell you it, that that band was was uh, there was nothing uh, fake about that band. What what you saw is is what it was. Well, I've always read that when he started it, the whole idea was just to have a band that played around California for a while. Is is that true? Um, well, we did. <laughs> we all got in a van for for two years and just played around and went up and down the coast and you know and then and um just played crappy love and you know he had opportunities you know he had opportunities to make easier you know there were there were they came across the table and he said no i don't want to do it like that i want to do it for real and and we just you know everybody just said yeah let's do that you know that's what well, that's what we started doing music for in the first place was that the first band that you were in that I guess for lack of a better term, jammed that much? Well, that well, yes. <laughs> all <laughs> Birdie Tree was Birdie Tree, that's all we were. I mean, you know, when Mark when Mark Ford says he didn't uh play that solo the same every time, he, it's probably because he just forgot. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we were just that was what we were. Everybody was just we just went for it. We were obnoxious. You know, like when I played with Margadonia, we would go to clubs and just wait for the band to get off stage, walk up the stage and start jamming, you know, for, for an hour and just use their instruments. And they, they didn't like it. I'm sure they didn't like it. We were jerks about it. But it was just what we did. It was in our blood. And the thing about CRB, that was a level that I've never been, at, been to and that I probably will never be, get, get to again. Um, there were there was a organic synchronicity in that band that is is was just overwhelming. You know, I would get lost at a show and just kind of, you know, hit the first note and then all of a sudden the show was over. It was it was it was five guys always having your back. You can't jam like that unless you do. You know, if you don't have the other guys back and if you're not listening and you're not backing off and then knowing when it's your time to step up and do something weird, then that, that, that never works. And that was, that was a, that was an atmosphere. It was, you know, hundred percent put out there by, by Chris, you know, he was very, he was very generous that way. And he hadn't been, you know, he hadn't really been playing guitar. So he kind of, just humbled himself and put himself in that same position, you know, where he was doing the same thing and everybody just felt valuable. It sounds like uh, there was a lot of truth to the term brotherhood then. There was, and it was, it, you know, and it was, like I said, it was rough, you know, that's a tough world, you know? I mean, that's um, when you're, when you're that passionate, you're also that intolerant of anything that, that threatens the kingdom, you know, even if it's just something you perceive threatens the kingdom, um, you have to be, you know, you have to be uh, focused and, and, and unaccepting of any kind of dissension, whether it's musical or psychological or, or philosophical. And um, that is hard, you know, it's hard on, on the rebel and it's hard on the, the state you know and it's and it's but it's what makes a great band one of the things i always appreciated about especially those first two or three records was it didn't sound anything like the black crows and it really didn't sound a whole lot like new earth mud you know his a band before that and big moon ritual comes out and which i think is is the best record the crb recorded I absolutely love it but how many people released their debut album and started off with a 16 minute track I mean, that's, uh, that's bold. And that's brave. Um, talk a little bit about the, because if I'm not mistaken, the first two albums were all recorded in the same sessions. Is that correct? I know. I know this, you know, when we got into the studio, it was a very, you know, count to four, let's do it once or twice and it's done. You know, you don't get the opportunity to play with a bunch of guys where you really pull that off. So, the first, you know, every record we made did not have a lot of 
post or overdubbing. You know, we went in there, we would go in and overdub background vocals and then things like that. Like if Neil was playing rhythm guitar, he'd want to go in and, you know, overdub a lead or whatever. But most of the time it was just this organic thing where Chris was singing. I mean, who does that? Who plays guitar and sings live in the studio and says, okay, that's it. That's the take. Let's do it. You know, that was old school. Chris really wanted to tap into that, that old world, that old world of, 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 of music, of philosophy, and just getting lost in it like it's, like it's a hallucinogenic, which it is, you know, and we did that. We definitely did that. And, um, you know, the band, you know, the band um, evolved, you know, sometimes we devolved and, and then we evolved again and member changes and all that kind of thing. But it was um, it was mostly a beautiful, organic, truthful thing. Was that were, the, were those first couple albums were they recorded analog? Man, um, that's actually kind of an important question. Uh, God, you know, I, I think a lot of what I think what we did was a combo of both. Perhaps I'm going to assume that it, that if it was done on two inch tape we would have dumped it to pro tools and then mixed just because it's more cost effective and, and you just have a lot more flexibility when you do that. But the, you, you know, I don't know, man, I'm not, I would have to get back to you on that. I just was asking that because for one, it just has kind of almost that feel when you listen to it, but then you talked about how organic it was and how he wanted to take it back in time. Old school. If you're going to do that, I mean, to me in this day and age, there's no better way to do that than record an, on analog. There, there is, and there's a lot of mythology around that. So, I mean, I don't know how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole, but, you know, magnetic tape and sounds, you know, um, radio frequencies and, and, and everything collide, you know, with us through these machines, right? And, and now we have these computers, you know, that are just kind of a refined, evolved version of a, of a machine, really. Um, that just take these little snapshots of what we did back then, right? But honestly, I think that it's not necessarily the analog recording. It's the limitations that we had back then that made things great. You know, like a, a, a beautiful painting, right, from the Renaissance, may have taken a long time, you know, months, a year, you know, a long time to paint, right? But when you were done with it, it was, it, that was it. That was the art. It wasn't the reflection of the art, that body of the, the paper, the, the, the canvas and the paint, you know, and the blood and sweat and tears that went into that single piece was the art. And it's part of what made it valuable, right? Mm -hmm. So, when you make a piece of art now, you know, I'm going to piss off a lot of artists, you know, but I mean, I, I feel that I've always felt that art is, is an expression of our insanity and our, and our egos, right? When you're an artist, you feel this desire to make art over everything else, over having a family, over, you know, you know, by pissing off your friends and your, and, 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 you know, disappearing and missing out on a lot of other things. Right. Right. It's just kind of this weird ego trip to release the pain that you have about, you know, your existential pain about your existence or whatever, whatever it is. Right. So when we got into the seventies, all that incredible post-World War II, you know, progress, sociological progress and psychological progress just burst out of that music scene, you know, sixties and seventies. And these machines were, evolving as as the music was you know and what would the beatles have sounded like on pro tools i don't know i mean i think they would still be great you know but i don't know i mean we they had limitations to work with so that's what what happened right the mona lisa would not exist without the limitations of a paintbrush and whatever paint you had on your easel Right. And, 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 and how quickly you could paint before it dried up. Right. Those were all limitations. Now, instead of limitations, we value ease 
of, of, of labor. We don't care. You know, like nobody wants to take the time to learn how to play guitar or learn how to play drums and wood chop and go out there. You know, a lot of young artists wonder about, you know, how many likes can I get? How quickly can I do that? And it, it doesn't seem to matter to the body of artists now what those likes are for, what they mean. What does that mean to you? We friend now this digital uh, interaction with some stranger on the other side of the world is just pretending, you know? And it didn't, I think, you know, I always joke around and tell people, you know, I, I'm good with 1979 and before. You know, I could live without, if, if everything else vanished, you know, I, I could live without it musically and artistically. Um, it felt to me like that was kind of the, Rub the Rubicon moment where, where the drum machine, everybody knew, you know, those bumper stickers, everybody had, you know, drum machines are evil, right? And I thought that was so funny when I read it. And now I'm looking back and I realized how freaking genius that was. It was asking you as a human being to be perfect. And there's a guy, that's, it's pretty funny, there's a guy on uh, YouTube that takes Zeppelin and Stones and all the great works of the past and he time corrects them. Yes. <laughs> he drops them into this digital thing and time corrects the drummer, you know, and it's, it's, it's hilarious. It really does lose something. It loses its elasticity. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that, that I love, you know, I'm sitting in my studio right now and I'm looking at a screen, right. And I'm looking at what gear I have left what rack gear I have left my old tube pre's and all that kind of stuff and I turn my chair around and there's a drum set sitting behind me that I probably get to play every month on a record you know for somebody's song right. and then behind that is a closet with my supertones and my 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 champ my original champ and my Sandra European baseman you know and all my amps and they're just sitting there they're, they literally have spider webs on them you know and I just it's it's difficult for me to see all that kind of go away. I know that there's a world out there for it, but but the main driving force of music now is not that it is. And I I know that it always had a corporate element, and it always had the you know the white guy coming in with the two track recorder and getting a blues artist to sign away his life, and they they felt like they were signing away their soul, which I can't, you know, kind of agree, right. but, but it is a different world. Our technology has seeped into that. It's seeped into art and, and art seems to be presently losing that battle. I, I've actually seen those, those videos on YouTube that you mentioned. And it's, it's funny when you, when you do time, correct them and kind of get everything, you know, quote unquote, perfect. It really takes something away from the music. And I think that's why the music from the sixties and the seventies has such a longevity to it because there's such a, uh, a realness to it that, that things after it don't necessarily have, you know, you know what it is to, um, you know, back when I was a younger artist and I thought it was a lot better than I was. And those things came when all these, you know, pieces of technology came in into my possession, you know, I thought, well, that was the only boost that I needed to make me better, you know, and that was a long, you know, 20 year waste of time. Um, <laughs> because, because when you listen to those old recordings, like back when I listened to that stuff originally, and I'd listen to Hendrix or, or a Zeppelin track that just, you know, where you were just in your room with your headphones and you just went away, you were just gone listening to this stuff, right? It was, it sounded perfect. And I mean, perfect. It just, there was nothing I would change, right? And it lasted that way for, long, for a long time till I'm an old man and I still feel that way. You know, <laughs> back when I was making song, music back then, I focused on, damn, the drummer, you know, he slowed down there again. We got, he ruined the song, you know, or, or damn it, my, my vocals sucked there. Let me just do it a few more times and everything will be okay, you know? And it never was, right? And I listened back to that Zeppelin stuff. And, and it is sloppy. It was the same. 
as when you're going when you go in and you make your little demo. But they didn't suck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they were amazing. And and it was it wasn't perfect. It was out of tune. And the bass player hit some bad notes. And the and and the singer was out of key. And they kept it. Some brilliant guy behind the the desk said, Nope, that's it. You're done. And they said, No, we gotta do it again. It's like, no, you don't, you're done. And it turned out, you know, to be this team of people that just made that stuff great. And it's not you can't if you play ACDC next to like a Guns N' Roses recording right the Guns N' Roses recording hits harder on many levels you know and you go back and you listen and you AB it right you listen to ACDC and you listen to his guitar and you, you say to yourself you know there's not a lot of distortion on that guitar it really isn't as distorted as I remember it being right. it was just perfect it was it was perfect for the band. It was perfect for you only have a certain amount of real estate, uh, you know, in the sonic field. You only have so many things that can take up the low end, so many instruments that could take up the middle, and so many that could take up the high end, right? And if you don't understand that, and if you're not playing for the team, you're not going to succeed. Absolutely, and something to that effect. When you recorded with Mark Ford at the Compound Studios, I feel like the work that they do at the Compound Studios is very much in the same vein as that spontaneous recording style that you would get out of the 60s and 70s music. Because you could hear things vibrating off snare drums and, and, and doing all that. And it kind of culminated for me, in, which I'm glad it finally saw release, was that Fuzz Machine record. That, to me, sounds very yeah. live in the studio. What was it like making that record? Um, that was live that was live um it was it was it was tough it was um was that like you know i can't even remember now is that the first one we did no the second one the one with elijah the, the second one okay so the second one we did was kind of the end we had been touring for a while and um mark and i were kind of not seeing eye to eye on on things and um that record i believe didn't even come out I think by the time that thing came out, I, I was gone. I think Dennis, the drummer, and I, or was it Tony? I don't know. We were gone, I think, by that time. And Mark kind of just did his own thing. And then he went to that, uh, I think we were supposed to do a third record. And then he decided to do that blues record. Right. Um, and then I had, and then him and I didn't really talk for a while. It yeah. was great. I mean, it was a, it was a, that was a, definitely an organic and very live record. I think I don't think Mark and I have ever done anything that wasn't really pretty much live. Well, Mark, I was very fortunate to see the uh, last ever show uh, that uh, Neil Casal played with Ryan Adams. And I, I got to stand about five or six feet from Neil for the whole show. And um, that's when he really came on my radar and he made that one of the most magical musical experiences I've ever been a part of. What was it like knowing every night you were going to go out on that stage and stand next to him and listen to him play the guitar? I got to imagine that was a lot of fun. Um, I had a lot of fun playing with everybody in that band, but Neil and I were very, got very close for a while. And, and just, we just kind of had a similar sense of humor and he was always, he was my buddy across the, the, the aisle, you know, on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and we would just kind of open our curtains every once in a while and, and crack jokes and talk about the mighty Bush or, or, or Tim and Eric or whatever crazy thing we were obsessing on at the time. Um, but he, you know, when I first started playing with Neil, I didn't get it because he, I'm a, you know, I'm a faithless kind of guy, right? That's just kind of what I am like bass wise, right? That's my, that's my world. Like I, I love that groovy, you know, Ron Wood, um, uh, you know, faces kind of chunky, you know, uh, rock and roll, right? And Neil had this fluid, you know, noodly fluid style, right? And I always kind of, like when we first started, I always looked over thinking like, man, I really love him to just kind of bust out a, you know, a Hendrix solo or something like that, right? And he never would. And I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was his a, a timid nature, but it wasn't. Like 
pretty quickly I realized he was this just ambient painter. You know, he just he he didn't play guitar so much as he just as he just broad strokes ambience noise, you know, beautiful melodic ambience noise. And he and, and you know what the funny thing is though. He was a metal guy too. He loved that early stuff. Him mm. and he was so excited. You know, um, I played at LA Guns for a while. Those guys always made fun of me, for you know, for whatever, for one reason or another. <laughs> and um, Neil just loved that stuff. You know, he 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 asked. You know, he would. You know, so what what was that like? Or you know, what what were you guys up to back then? Or did you like it? Did you not like it? What he was he was fascinated. He can do that. He could play that that kind of guitar but again we all had our place in the crb we knew it we we quickly found our place each of us and if we didn't if one of us hadn't done that then it probably wouldn't have would have worked let me i was going to ask you about that how did the la guns thing how did that happen <laughs> that, okay so back then, like I said, I've always been a, you know, I've never been a metal guy, really. You know, I mean, like ACDC is as close as I get to hard rock kind of stuff. And I appreciate it now. I really do. I appreciate a lot of kinds of music now. But back then, I was trying to do the opposite. You know, like I got, I, I, I like Bowie and Lou Reed and, and, and uh, you know, Faces and, and uh, Tom Verlaine and, and all anything but that anything but Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> and, um, one time I was dating this girl. I won't mention her name cause she, she hates me now. So I won't say her name. Um, <laughs> but I walked in to the cat club to slim Jim Phantoms club. Right. And it was just one of those nights. I just, you know, like the, the, the gods were, were shining on me and I had this big black coat on with black fur and sunglasses, you know, and I, I walked in and I had my girl on my left arm and I had this other girl that we met there on my right arm. And I walked into the cat club. We always used to go there on Thursdays and jam. It was a really, really great, amazing, magical night, you know, where just the audience and everybody just, it was magical. Right. Um, and I walked in and Tracy guns was sitting at, at the table watching the show. I think he was taking a break because he was usually actually jamming at that, uh, on that night. And he looked up at me and said, Marty, oh, hey, man, what's going on? He said, you want to play bass in L.A. Guns? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, cool. <laughs> so that was it. <laughs> and I went out with L.A. Guns for like uh, four or five years or something. And I had a blast. It was like it was like Spinal Tap. <laughs> He's a fascinating guy. Tracy is a really fascinating guy. He told me he told me a couple things that I never forgot. One of them was he thought I was too much of a pushover, you know, and I was too much of a people pleaser, which I probably am, you know, and uh, I was I was pissed off about something. And he came up and said, hey, little muddy, what's going on? I said, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm pissed off about some stupid thing. And he goes, listen, let me tell you something. It'll make you happy for the rest of your life. You have to remember the most powerful word in the English language, and that is no. <laughs> And I, it didn't really sink in at the time, you know, like, okay, whatever, you know, that's great for you. But And I realized, and I started doing that in my life, saying no to the things that I instinctually knew were probably a disaster, right. you know, and, and, and I, and I would never learn that lesson. I was a yes guy. I'm a yes man. Like, let's do it. Whatever. Let's go to uh, Mexico city. It's three in the morning. It's like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> no money. You know, it's like, well, how are we getting back? I don't know. We'll figure it out. <laughs> so it, that was, that was a, a world of, it was just a circus when I went out with those guys. It was, it was fun and cra crazy. And uh, Tracy is also one of the greatest guitar players I've ever been around, you know, not, not just played with, but just seen, you know, he truly is like, and it's hard to tell, I guess, sometimes, especially from their early stuff, because back then recordings weren't that great unless you had, you know, the president of the label on your side and, and all that kind of stuff. But 
Like if you ever got a chance to see Tracy play, do it. He's he's a, a great guitar player, and he's a huge uh, Jimmy Page fan, and you can you can see it come through uh, when you know that. That actually uh, speaks to uh, something I've I've thought for for many years now. Do you feel that a lot of musicians from that that eighties LA era get unfairly pigeonholed as maybe not they don't get the rec- recognition for being the these great musicians that they are? Oh yeah, CC oh, Deville, great songwriter great musician crazy son of a bitch you know <laughs> but he's he's he was super talented he co-wrote for a lot of people too like if you look it up he's he co-wrote some some pop stuff for people too which is not you know easy to do no not easy to do and they definitely were and here's you know the one thing i did learn too um as silly as i thought some of those bands were they don't you know just because <laughs> you know in my mind you had to be dylan or Bowie, you know, or Prince to be important. You know what I mean? I went through that period where like, oh, you know, music is not just a thing that you take lightly. You have to change the world with it in some way. But what I didn't realize was you don't have to change the world in my way. You know what I mean? You don't have to change the world just in the way that I think the world needs to be changed. You just have to keep the thing. You got to keep the train moving forward, right. you know, make sure it doesn't go off the track. And um, those bands, they, they have their moment. They have their time. You're, there is nothing more fun than that era. <laughs> <laughs> I was here, you know, I was, I survived early, but I survived. And it was just, it is nothing like that anymore. It's nothing like that. They want to build, you know, they're slowly closing all the clubs on sunset so that they can build condos because they want to attract people from all around the world to the great sunset boulevard, not realizing, or maybe they do, or maybe they're just too stupid or arrogant, not realizing that the reason people would want to buy a condo on sunset boulevard is so they could go to the cat club or if they, or so they could go to the Roxy or, or the Viper room or go see some crazy, whatever crazy antics are going on. When you start building condos everywhere and you wake up in the morning and open your curtains, all you see is the idiot across the street in the condo, Yeah, you know, and that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. I mean, they're doing that around the whole, you know, in the whole country, but most, you know, in LA, it's so short-sighted and it's so horrible to watch. It just, I'm like an old man screaming, get off my lawn, you know, <laughs> at this point in the city. I mean, we're dying. We truly are. And it's just, it's a bunch of short-sighted, greedy people who who do not listen to the people and who just want to make money and they just want to move up to a higher office and and, and they don't really give a crap about the, the the Viper Room except will it bring in tax revenue? Well, before we get to what you're doing now, I do have one more question about that Burning Tree era and and talking about like bands like LA Guns and stuff like that. Obviously, you guys were, you know, all in L.A. at the same time. Did a lot of those guys come see you, see you, see Burning Tree play? Uh, we would. Yeah. I always knew when Duff was in the audience because he was like a foot taller than everybody else. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of those people, you know, we'd see Axel out in the audience and 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 Izzy and, and Donnie actually, I think, made a record. Donnie and Jim Asher's made a record with Izzy yeah. at one point. And of course, everybody went to see everybody. That's what you did. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, there was more than one night where Mark and I and Donnie, we were kind of inseparable. I was, I was kind of an outsider, but like whenever we went out, we were, we went out together a lot of time. We would end up in different places. We don't need to get into those details, but, <laughs> but um, we went, went out together and we would go to shows, right? So we would go and watch, I remember, I remember us like what we opened for Guns N' Roses, I think uh, a couple of times and, and the cult or something at the scream, I believe. And, um, Mark and I, you know, Mark always had a bottle of Jack in his hand. Donnie always had a bottle of Jim and I always had a bottle of vodka. And I think I just ended up with vodka because that was because they already took Jim and, and Jack, but <laughs> we would just be standing there, you know, watching from the side, what waiting to play or, or we just got off stage. I wish I remember looking at Guns N' Roses, like, Nah, they're never gonna make it. <laughs> we, you know, it's like, nah, yeah, you're right, they're never gonna make it. And then there'd be times where we'd go see a band 
that just blew us away. And we'd be so pissed off and look at each other. You fucker, why can't you play like that? You know, and then we'd go practice. We'd go to like our practice place and we'd, we'd, uh, you know, jam till five in the morning and, and try to try to be better, you know? And that was, that was the beauty of the ecosystem. It fed each other. It was, it truly was this biological, um, this anemone or something, you know, it was just, it was, if we didn't have all of that, none of it would happen. You know, when Brian Jonestown Massacre lost their, their, their uh, uh, tambourine player, Joel, um, it kind of fell apart for a little while. You know, it, it just wasn't, he, they, it, you know, everybody wanted to see the crazy guy with the sideburns and the tambourine <laughs> walking around the stage, you know, and punching somebody in the face or, or whatever, whatever it was. And when you lose that kind of thing, you know, I don't know. You know, I, it's it, it it's all it it was. I know it's not the end of the world, but music is important, and it was it did change the world. It truly did. It united people, and and we all thought the internet was going to do the same thing. And you know, look at us now. <laughs> we can't even agree that today ends in Y. You know. <laughs> Obviously, we uh, we're as we wrap up here. We had the quarantine and things got kind of squirrely for a while. Were you able to keep producing and 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 doing stuff like that during the lockdown? Will I will I get in trouble if I say I did? <laughs> no, <laughs> not with us. Yeah, of course I did. You know, yeah. my wife my wife's a nurse. She said just put a put on a mask and put on an N95. And that was the big big. Uh, there was a lot of problems. You know, we're going to be talking about this. Uh, the um, you know this rollout for a very very long time but it was a lot of you know there was i think that gave artists a moment to rethink mm. things maybe rethink the trajectory of their desires or their career and um hopefully they took that time dig deep and write some really great material and and learn you know, and maybe not stop, you know, maybe withdraw, you know, withdraw from the public part of it and not worry about what the public thinks and just kind of do your thing. And hopefully everybody didn't just write like a COVID-19 pandemic anthem, <laughs> <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, oh, they'll be looking for these songs. Let's all write one of those. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried that uh, Pete Townsend might come out with a, uh, a you know, a rock opera. A COVID nineteen rock. Oh, opera. oh God! I, oh, that would that would be bad. He's one of my favorites. <laughs> the Who is one of my all time favorites. Donny Donny used to light his drum set on fire all the time. Can you imagine us doing that now? Oh man, we were just. I mean, good Lord! In a tiny club, packed, he would have lighter fluid. We'd light the drum set on fire. What the hell were we thinking? <laughs> you know, good Lord. So what's currently on the horizon for you? You have anything uh, coming out soon? Anything up and coming? I'm working. I'm working with some sm some young artists that um, I worked with a lot of young artists, and a lot of them just didn't make it. They didn't, you know, they didn't make it across the finish line. Yeah. I've got a couple. Um, I won't name them yet. You know that I'm working with right now that are promising, and uh, who knows? You know, it's they're trying to do their own thing, and you know. I tell them, you know, I don't want to talk you out of it, but I hope you understand what you're asking for. Right. You know, like I, I tell parents ask, you know, parents ask me all the time. I, I used to like teach kids in the after school music program and stuff for a while with my partner. And, um, that I gotta be honest, that was some of the funnest uh, years of my life. We did an actual play musical based on Logan's run, but the school <laughs> thought it was, um, you know, Logan's Run was not appropriate for K through six. <laughs> so uh, I just renamed it. <laughs> I think we renamed it Black Sheep. <laughs> and everybody loved it. The kids loved it. You know what I mean? And, and um, I just, I, I try to work with kids who understand how hard this is, but love every minute of it and want to just do the work. And it's very tough. And I, I say this to people all the time. Why am I working harder than you? Why am I working harder than you? Am, am I your dad? Am I your mom? Am I, you know, who am I to you? I mean, I'm your producer. Get off your ass, 
fix that chorus, re-sing that verse, do what you need to do to be great. If you don't want to be great, there's plenty of other people you can work with. But I want you to be as great as you can be. And 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 kids, I don't know. I mean, the kids these days, right? <laughs> we all say that. But I, I feel this apathy. There was there was this desperation for us back then to do something important. And I know that it was also like, hey, I want to get chicks and I want to be famous and I want a mansion and whatever. For, for There was an element to that, right? But there was also an element to like, we have to do it right. We got to do it right. We're, 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 you know, riding the coattails of greats here. Do you want to just be a, do you want to take it a step further? You know, like, let's make it great. And very few of us get the chance to do that, but you have to try, you know, that's what it's about. You got to make the journey interesting. You got to make it challenging and make it mean something or it doesn't matter. You know, the, the prize is, is dying. Anyway, you know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. That's a negative way to end, but you know, it's just like that's what it is. You know, live live a meaningful life. If you're going to do something, do it meaning do something meaningful. Well, first of all, thank you for coming on. I mean, we we really enjoy like I said, we've had a lot of people reaching out to us, you know, "Hey, can you guys get muddy on?" and like, "We'll try. We'll work on it." Um, and we always let our guests give us a song to play us out. And it can be a song you've been on, or it can be somebody you like. It doesn't matter. You, you're, in, you're in control here. Oh, man. Just you mean any song any, ever? Any song ever. So you're going to regret this, but <laughs> it's called Eels by the Mighty Boosh. Look up the Mighty Boosh, and it will be a piano performance live from the Mighty Boosh. You're going to hate me or you're going to love me. <laughs> well, um, I do want to tell everybody they can follow you on Instagram at Muddy Stardust and keep up with uh, kind of what you got going on. And You know really- you know what, man? I, I, I appreciate that, but I'm not – I don't do it anymore. I'm, oh, okay. I'm actually about to just drop out of Facebook too just because because I just feel it's just too out of control and I just I just don't want to be a part of it anymore. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We had a lot of fun, and, and you're more than welcome to come back anytime you like. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you next time. Stay tuned. <laughs> Good boy. Take one of those ivories. About some evil business going on down Bethnal Greenway. Are you talking about rape and murder? Although those things can be quite enjoyable. I'm talking about Satan's onyx tubes. That's right, my friend. I'm talking about eels! I'm talking about eels! Ah, yes! I'm talking about eels up inside ya! Finding an entrance where they can! Eels up inside ya! Finding an entrance where they can! Boring for your mind, for your tummy, for your anus Bang, bang! Don't slip on the cobbles, boy. 
They're covered in blood, that's right, it's your own. Don't slip on the cobbles, boy. They're covered in blood, that's right, it's your own. Don't slip on the cobbles, boy. They're covered in blood, that's right, it's your own. Don't slip on the cobbles, boy. They're covered in blood, that's right, it's your own. All's obsolete. I couldn't hear the beat. Staggering about, I was. On me old man's feet. I have one foot in the grave. And the rape.